0: I'm excited about this because we're actually starting a series. Now, if you clicked on this video, you've probably seen the thumbnail uh, straight out of Compton, no, not straight out of Compton, straight out of Calvinism. And basically what I want to do with this series is I want to go ahead and talk a little bit about people that were either in Calvinism or uh, sort of wrestled with Calvinism. And talk a little bit about what the Calvinistic theology uh, did, what it taught, any problems that anybody saw within the theology itself. And then for those people that got out of Calvinism, what was it that led them out of Calvinism? And so this morning, uh, we have Mike Cratch with us, and he's got quite an interesting uh, story. He's got uh, some high influences within the Reformed theology that, you know, just talking to him offline that I'm sure he's going to share with us. And uh, so uh, thank you for checking this out. For Without further ado, Mike, I thank you for being with us this morning. Could you share just a little bit about yourself, any ministries you're a part of, and uh, anything you'd like to share before we actually jump into these questions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Just, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I do appreciate it. It's an honor to be here and if I can help somebody else kind of see something for what it is, um, absolutely fantastic. Um, but yeah, for me, uh, I got saved. I'm 52 now. I got saved at the age of 27. I was born and raised in the suburbs suburb Simi Valley, California. Um, and honestly up until, uh, until when I got saved, I had never had anybody witness to me and never had anybody share with me, had never heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Situation: I was invited to a a harvest crusade, kind of the uh, heir apparent to Billy Graham and and Greg Laurie, and and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, looking back, it it was a really confusing gospel presentation. But God is bigger than that, and so we went forward and asked Jesus into our heart. And I don't know; I wouldn't say that's a saving message today. I don't know, but God had our attention through that, and and probably was saved if not that night, with weeks after that, as I I wrestled with it. And within a year, we were challenged. Oh, excuse me, my phone. We're challenging the tribe uh, amongst unreached people groups, and uh, our church agreed with this conviction and calling, if you will. And, uh, we spent the next four years in uh, preparation for this with uh, New Tribes Mission. Now it's called Ethno 360, but we went to their Bible school, uh, which is really what kind of helped me break free from the uh, the early Christianity I had, which was uh, you know, Calvinistic Turner Burn. Um, he died, burdens on you kind of thing. So I had to come to terms with that, and now I just I have such an appreciation for my church, but... I'm kind of at odds with it, and, uh, but I was interning there at the same time. So for four years, I would intern amongst the Calvinists, and sometimes they'd convince me, and I'd go waffle back and forth on things, but uh, in the end, you know, not not me. It just didn't come to conclude conclusion they did, But I, and I told them that. Like, yeah, I don't, you know, I was discipling a young kid as I interned there, and his mom called me, and he's just curled up on the ball crying that he'll never be good enough for Jesus. It was just heartbreaking with the Calvinism. And Calvin's little brother is called Lordship Salvation. The two go hand in hand. Because at the end of the day, they can say what they want. But Calvinism is about you and what you do, period. That's the hard and thrust of it is to, is to make sure you're holy enough, a good enough Christian to be a Christian. And so this kid, I'm going to call him little Johnny, and he's curled up on a ball. And I went straight to the boss, which was Pastor Francis Chan. And I said, you understand? And his sister had already left the faith concluding the same. And um, he said, don't you think I'm being misunderstood? And I said, no, Francis, you're not being misunderstood you're teaching holiness every weekend you're raising the bar it's ridiculous and and this poor kid doesn't know whether he's coming or going and it just but then i had another conversation where I, I basically said you teach works and uh he had kind of a uh emerging church answer he goes well don't you see god working in my life and i had the choice but i said yeah i mean he's a sovereign god i'm not saying you're uh you know and he goes well i see god working in yours so go and do what you're called to do and so essentially when you have a church funding our ministry they know where you stand and they're kind of funny why not so we went off spent six years working in an unreached people group in Papua New Guinea. And this is where, and this will be a book I'm, I'm you know, starting to jot out in my mind and write is the American gospel in the mission field. And from my time at Cornerstone to even now wrestling with people coming into my church and just literally categorically sold out Christians who will undeniably reject justification by faith and walk out the door. Um, they want a message where they can embrace it, their commitment, their repentance. They did ABC 123. They gave their life to Jesus and got baptized. There's no mention of the cross. There's no mention of faith. There's no mention of trust. And then they'll tell you they got baptized. Uh, they gave their life to Jesus as if it was their life that saved them. And then they'll tell you their good works and the ministries they serve. And that is the Southern California gospel. Um, so I'm at odds with that. I still am. We have people come to our church, love our message, realize we justification by biblical faith, not special Calvinistic, you know saving faith, but a uh, real faith. And and so it's a smaller church, but it is what it is. We're trying to chase through the word. But so we spent five years uh, in Papua New Guinea. And um, my wife's health and my son's health, he had to come home and uh, came home at the t- around the time that Francis was leaving and really connected with, the, with his replacement, deep, deep friends. Just the same theological concerns are there, but not to the same degree. He taught lordship salvation, but not holiness salvation. And so at any rate, but in time, it, it just didn't work. It was time to go. So we took a position at to another church where we could, you know, be within our comfort zone in our soteriology. And I've been the pastor here now for uh, six years.
0: Amen. Amen. Now, uh, it's, it's amazing within Calvinism, they want to stress so much that they're elect because there's nothing they can do to earn salvation. But yet on the other side, they have to say that I'm elect because I do. And so they have to posit some aspect of works on themselves to boast in their salvation. It's amazing. I do have a question for you. Uh, so you talked a little bit about your testimony and, and a little bit how you got saved. What actually led you into Calvinistic theology? Were you ever really entrenched in it or what led you into looking into it?
1: Well, I remember I'd been saved, I think, probably three or four weeks at the time I owned a service company. Um, and so I was actually doing a job for a friend, and he was the one who took us to the Harvest Crusade. So he he's about six months ahead of us in terms of being saved or something. And he had me meet him at one of his rentals and proceeds to tell his tenant that I'm a brand-new Christian. So the guy has some small talk and says something about still going to hell. And and uh, I wasn't one of those Christians that MacArthur and Zane Hodges had to write about. Right, I was all in. And uh, I was super excited to argue, uh, you know, the guy that flows out of James 2 and creates all the problems. But uh, uh, this guy disappears, comes back a few minutes later, and gives me a six-part cassette series uh, on how I could still end up in hell. And it was instantly appalling to me. Uh, in just a few weeks that I learned that he atoned for my sins, that it was it was finished, that he rose as a result of our justification, Romans 4.25, being completed, like all these precious truths. And so I listened to a couple of these tapes, and there's just something so intrinsically wrong with the idea that Jesus would use the word eternal repeatedly, not once, not twice. We're talking dozens of times, um, that there would be no one verse, no one, you know, um, guy that shipwrecked his faith, therefore he went to hell. Like, there's that would be probably... The most profound doctrine, without a verse to support it, <laughs> yeah. and with the Armenianism um, that it was default, and that's what it is. I believe for probably uh, the vast majority of lay level Calvinists, is the idea that somehow it is finished eternal life sealed by the Spirit. Especially if you understand the perfect and the heiress, and you're sitting there looking you know, now with a little bit Greek in me, what an atrocious doctrine! So what happens then is you just default. Calvinists is on the other side, and it's just kind of the the default position, but it was the uh, seeing the uh, atrocious fallacies of, of the Armenian doctrine that led me to, to Calvinism, not realizing now there is immediate position between the two, of course. But yeah, so that's that's what it was really his default.
0: You know, and that's that's interesting because it, it sort of seems like everybody holds on to this false dichotomy in the fact that if you're not a Calvinist, you're Arminian. And if you're not Arminian, you're naturally a Calvinist. And so you get this false dichotomy coming. Now, you mentioned Francis Tran- Chan, and I imagine that's the Francis Chan that probably most of uh, evangelicalism is very much aware of. Uh, Who within Calvinism were influencers for you with their theology? Uh, You mentioned a little bit about Chan. Was there anybody else, and how did they influence you?
1: Um, Well, obviously, you know, any Christian in Southern California, maybe even the United States, and arguably around the world, by, by Dr. John MacArthur, obviously. So, you got kind of our our teacher's teacher if you will um somehow i ended up my first few months as a christian with the macarthur study bible and so if you you know had a doubt then you would you know you would look at ephesians 1 4 and you go yeah see chosen (laughs) you know um but so and then john piper and rc Sproul, and i think um probably RC because he's on the radio at the time I'm running a service company. So I'm in and out of the truck all day. And as a brand new believer, I just left it on the Christian radio and soaked it all in. So you'd have, um, you know, Sproul um, and Piper and uh, MacArthur. And then when I was interning at the office, um, some of them were the, what I would call the kindler and gentler Calvinists. Um, I, I think most of them were actually, I, you know, but they're still at the end of the day, they're, they're still Calvinists. So it was a lot of the staff, um, my early, um, my early mentor uh, at Cornerstone, uh, Pastor Doug Fox, um, he was basically free grace. I mean, he agreed with me. And um, when he, when he kind of saw the writing on the wall that I needed to fellowship in those circles, he even kind of told me where to go once. But his, uh, well, to go, I didn't mean to <laughs> get lost where to go, but where to go to church and meet up with another local pastor, and he's now my predecessor. So Doug had uh, tremendous respect. Uh, for the Free Grace Gospel, and I think it's because he, too, went to New Tribes Bible Institute, uh, which teaches just Genesis to Revelation right through the text. And it's a fantastic school. If anybody here is is looking for it, it's now uh, Ethnos 360 out of Waukesha, Wisconsin, but changed my life for the better. Fantastic school. Um, and Doug agreed. He goes, man, I learned more at NTBI than I did at Master's Seminary. I'll quote him on that one. Today I die. <laughs> Master's is pure theology and not necessarily bibliology, but... Um, of people here that went there all over me that that's just my thing um but yeah it was just so embedded in the entire community that i was in you have this level but you know uh, guys that you know and when you're when you're watching that church grow and we first went to cornerstone 400, 400 people and we left to go to the mission field pushing five thousand. so new staff guys would come and from masters and and then at one point we started a, a bible college i was the first dean of students at it Bible College and um, so bringing in more professor types and, and you know different, just rubbing shoulders with these guys and yeah plenty of them that's they were all basically of that mindset
0: so you had some uh, sort of personal encounters with some high highly regarded reformed teachers huh
1: well yes and the, here's the thing with Francis like if you know his, his concern was holiness and devotion right so you could walk in uh, a raging Armenian, and, and even right, I say this with the eh, more so in the latter years with Francis, but even Catholic. Like we had from Cornerstone, we had a team come over to help us um, on the mission field. And I had a couple, uh, anybody with new tribes who studied syncretism, like you do not want tribal people sacrificing a chicken to Jesus and running it around between their legs, right? So we all, that's what happens. Um, we all study syncretism. So all of my coworkers, mission field, are kind of in tune with it biblical faith and the other kind of thing we throw in there but so i had one or two people pull me aside and go you know she's catholic she came out here and, and from your church this lady's unsafe she's catholic and i was like dang but that's see a cornerstone it didn't matter if you were committed and holy and he didn't teach um he exhorted and guys knew that and he got away with it because they would just simply oh that's francis he's kind of more like a prophet than you know whatever but um i i um so yeah uh, at the same time if if so if a guy walked in and he's armenian francis doesn't care about that that's not his concern his concern is holiness so if your understanding works for you just be holy because that proves you're really a christian kind of thing so uh, I, you know I, probably the better ones i i don't know if you've ever heard about uh, dr doug bookman a fantastic teacher and uh he's uh dispensational and lordship but he's a five-point Calvinist. he's one of my favorite human beings even though we've lost touch over the years i had nothing ill will to say about him but in of theological circles he'd probably be about the cream of the crop there you know again francis i wouldn't see as a reformed teacher i would just see as an advocate of you know at the time because of masters calvinists but now i understand he's you know he's in charismatic circles and, and you know I, I don't i don't want to speak ill of him since but i can only speak to our facts and our you know but so kind of yes kind of no
0: okay well, no, I can definitely appreciate that, and and I'm very cautious whenever people want to go ahead and talk about different people, uh, and they want to attack the person rather than the theology, or they want to try to believe they hold to a particular theology, and they've never really done their due diligence to actually look into it. But my question for you next is, when you were really looking into and, and considering Calvinism, how did you view the character of God?
1: You know, I, I uh, looking back on that at the time— I, you know, if they would have said you know anything in the Bible that honored, I, I would have been like, okay, that's what he said. So I never, um, I never sat in my room at night and thought, dang, electing like I don't know what percentage you put. No way it hits ten percent of the world, right? I, I just don't see so such a low number, and then the the hoops they had to jump through to prove they're part of that number. I never, I was too young, <clears throat> too young in the faith. To really sit back and and go, dang, that's, you know, so that same default that makes many people Calvinists, you just kind of go, of all the people, I'm, I'm chosen. Oh, my gosh. Right. And you're just so overwhelmed with that, that it really does snuff out any of the concerns until somebody presents you with a proper reading of Romans chapter 9, I'll have mercy in him, I have mercy, and that has absolutely nothing to do with Moses' salvation or anybody else's. Jacob, I loved Esau and hated. Chase that down through Genesis 25. Chase that passage down and realize that has absolutely nothing to do. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest Esau is probably a few chairs down from the Virgin Mary going, what did they do to our story? I have no doubt, I have no reason to think at all that Esau's not in now i've been beat up on that one by other free grace guys too but at the same time you, you if we can break away from the morality of the story um there's no reason to assume that Esau's in hell based on romans chapter 9 um so once those things start falling then you stand back and you go okay i appreciated being elect now i'm seeing that wait a minute <laughs> it's not what everybody says it is yeah. on a contextual reading of those passages. What about those other ninety to ninety-five percent of the world? What about them? They need to know this. And then again, because there's so many testimonies in Southern California. And when I was interning at Cornerstone, I saw this a lot and it really rubbed me. So on one hand, I was an intern but not a pastor. So I'd maybe work the prayer room on weekends or be involved in teaching a Bible study uh, on the life of David and, and kind of see all these people uh, kind of coming to the classes and serving in the prayer room at Cornerstone and offering biblical counsel and and just seeming to be like, man, this system of theology really, really works for you. And and then maybe they call me out to do a service job on their house and it's, oh, that effing neighbor, but they didn't hold back on the work. That son, I'm like, listen, go, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a different dude. Your and blankety-blank neighbor who complained to the city about where your RV was parked has just completely destroyed your Christianity. I know you wouldn't talk that way if it was Pastor Francis here or, or anyway. So I'm like, going, wait a minute. There's, there's something not lining up here. There's a whole lot of pretending going on in there. And then the more you see that and then, you know, in the days of social media comes out, guys aren't careful. They realize oh, I'm guilty of it too, but – the lifestyle you're posting doesn't match your church lifestyle and how many people have been put under this false sense because they pretend to be as holy as the boss says they need to be but you get into their personal lives it's total nonsense total nonsense so uh you know you start realizing most just be yourself steady mature slow growth out of that stuff um so yeah, unless I answered that question, I know I deviate from a little bit to the narrative that drives it, but that's stuff like that. You just it's dangerous.
0: No, I like that. I appreciate that. I know, uh, I've never really been in Calvinism. Now I did wrestle with it early on in my Christianity. I had a friend that was a huge Calvinist. He was a Johnny Mac fan, and uh to the point to where he would not even go to a church service, his local church, he would actually have a Bible study listening to Johnny Mac messages for their service and then a time of singing and things like that. But it was talking to him and getting to know him that really challenged me to actually look into uh, Romans chapter 9. Like you said, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and talking about the Pharaoh. And like you said, I don't nothing about that is soteriologically. You know, that is all looking at Jacob and Esau, the choosing of the nation as opposed to the choosing of everlasting life. But one thing I've always asked him about was regarding the character of God in uh, different aspects, he would always just cling to, you know, sovereignty of God, this my- mysteriousness of God. And, uh, I know with him, a big part of it was, you know, just chalking it up to, okay, 10%, I'm one of that elect, or like you said, probably maybe closer to five or 3%. You know, what about the others? Huh? Sovereignty of God type deal. But, uh, that, that really brings me into the next question I have for you. Okay. So you, you talked a little bit about how Calvinism, uh, made you view the character of God, which was interesting because in the beginning part, you mentioned that you were just so happy and felt blessed to be one of the elect that you didn't question anything. But once you started seeing things, then it sounds like it started, uh, did uh, gender up questions, but not only the character of God, but what did Calvinism do for evangelism for you? Did you see a need to go reach the lost, the Great Commission, if you will, that people hold to? Did it stop your evangelism? What What did it do?
1: Yeah, um, I think I think early on, um, it was yeah because I'm being discipled by Calvinists, right? Um, and and not one or two, um, and just, and so here I am being prepared to go to an unreached people group. And so basically their counsel is, you know, um, God's already chosen the ones that you're going to reach when you get there and, and that kind of thing. And so it's like a guaranteed to be successful because there's people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation seen in revelation that's the commission things like that so you're like okay yeah it's gonna work (laughs) because he's sovereign and then you get to school and you start doing case studies on how effective missionaries are and there's a story i remember in bible school it's called uh, two crates in a barrel or something like that a missionary who shows up having cut the umbilical cord to America, living on their food, uh, building a hut, uh, not bringing in, a hel- and this is, I, I know people that did this. They paid a Huey a mining company for their massive helicopter and flew an ocean container with motorcycles and it, dirt bikes in it, and landed it in a village. Their gospel response reflected that. The guys that go in there live amongst the people, uh, get sick like they do, don't call a helicopter or an airplane all the time, live as minimalists, and, and you, they have massive success rates and so you're going wait a minute you're telling me that becoming all things to all people really does affect the gospel and how people respond to it that's impossible because my bible says otherwise right so now you're now you're challenged with something and so you go to the calvinist with that and go wait a minute this guy over here never let go of the riches of america he raised 150 percent of his recommended support so he's wealthy missionary and he spared no expense in that village Left before the gospel was ever shared because he had a heart problem with with letting go. But at the same time, left such a horrible witness that those that did stay and that those that came in behind him did not have the response to the gospel because the soil of the heart hadn't been tenderized. And Look at some parables, right? You know what I'm talking about. But the guy who went in there, you know, uh, let his kids run around uh, in a diaper with the other two-year-olds in the village, didn't freak out every time something happened. Really, really, really got down in the trenches with these tribal people. Ate what they eat, didn't complain at the way they smelled. Just died to self. People banging on your door at two in the morning with a dying baby and getting out there and dealing with it. had a tremendous response to the gospel. Why is that Calvinist? Why is that? Oh, because God decreed, really. So at the same time, he decreed a crummy missionary to get a crummy response, and then he decreed a good missionary to get a good response. At some point, we just put this down and go, this whole system is total nonsense. Even if you went 50-50 on the text, right? It's ambiguous. It could go either way. And there's probably verses, if you and I spent all day talking about, we would find those verses. Well, I'm not real sure. It could go either way. But it's not a critical issue, so move on. If, Thou- if Calvinism was that way, Then you'd you'd still have no choice but to consider what in the world is going on with the effectiveness. So it didn't affect me in the sense I still wanted to reach my family. I still witnessed far more um, than probably anybody I knew, even when the stuff was in my head. But when it really came down to planning a strategy for how we were going to plan a church in an unreached people group from years of language learning without sharing the gospel, are we going to be open books? Are we going to be, am I going to model what it looks like? To love my wife as Christ loved the church, because to them, their wives are below pigs and dogs on the chain of priority. Wives are treated horribly. So I want them to look at me and go, why do you, why do you hold her hand? Why do you kiss her on the cheek? Why, why do you make sure she does you know? It's a witness thing. With Calvinism, that's not necessary. None of that's necessary. They're either divinely, you know, now I know their response would be no. In in his sovereignty, he also sent a mature, blah, blah, blah. I, I know, I heard all the arguments, but there comes a point where you go, the text doesn't add up and the narratives we're hearing don't add up either so there you have it and even on the second side like cornerstone for a while was was sending out a lot of church planners not a lot of them were successful why is that well because god decreed them to go and then decreed them not to succeed and even one or two of them to get divorced no you think maybe there was an issue in here <laughs> so boy I, I know we get to point fingers and i don't i certainly don't mean to but the text doesn't add up and and the results of applied ministry principles didn't add up either um so i you know from a personal evangelism it really didn't affect me i was not so entrenched in it and so sold out on it that i would not witness you no know, that never happened to me but it did affect my strategizing for ministry now,
0: that's an interesting take on it as far as the missional strategy is concerned within the calvinistic theology because as someone looking inside of calvinistic theology i would look at evangelism in the fact that Okay, if God has sovereignly elected all these people from beginning to the foundations of the world, then why does he need you to go knock on their doors? Yeah. You you know, and so I I still see an aspect of boastfulness, arrogance, and and pridefulness in the fact that God needs the elect to find the elect to save the elect. And it didn't make sense. Excuse me. No, you're good. (laughs) But uh, so you had mentioned some like 50-50 uh, passages, if you will, uh, that could either go one way or the other type deal. What were some of the biggest questions that you actually wrestled with while you were, you know, with Francis Chan's church and, and these other influences? Were there any big questions that you had a hard time wrestling with under Calvinist theology?
1: Yeah. I, I think so. And uh, that's one of the reasons why in, in my own mind, I wanted to go to their seminary and learn the Greek from them because I was in the Bible school. And I think they offered like intro to Greek as an elective, but it was mostly, no one's going to be Jesus from it. Or, but um, so that was always, always the argument. Oh, you're just that neat little tribal church planner guy. You go and get him in the jungle. But us, we're the real deal. And we know the Greek. And I uh, has the greatest fallacy ever, uh, in my opinion, because you learn the Greek, and it strengthens your position. <laughs> you realize that faith, in and of itself, is not the gift in Ephesians two. You have a gender problem there, and I know they'll explain that away. But there's so many times where actually, when you learn the Greek, um, that you uh, you actually strengthen where you're at, not you know, not cave to it. But uh, so, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> Uh, hard to answer that that one, but I think you don't know the Greek, so they'll come at you with things out of Romans nine or or the big one was uh, was Ephesians one four. And I remember one of the guys, Chuck a great guy, um, but he was at Master's Seminary at the time, and uh, there was a um, Dr. Harold Honer was coming from Dallas Seminary. In the back of my mind, I'm like, hmm, I'm pretty sure that maybe the feud with uh, Dallas and Masters, you know, the Mac- MacArthur thing, thing, was it dead or alive? But I wanted to go and hear Harold Horner because maybe this guy, at least I can relate to him on the gospel. He was teaching a summer intensive at Masters. And so I went with my my friend Chuck there at the time. And uh, in Ephesians 1, I was so excited. Like, this is the guy, right? And his, his, this is seminary level. These guys are THM students, Master students, and, and they had nothing to say about the late Harold Horner. But his exegesis on it was simply this. <laughs> Don't be amazed that he chose he chose, just be amazed that he chose you. I'm like, that's it. That's that's all you're going to do out of Ephesians. Now, I did appreciate that he he knew he was amongst the the heartbeat of Lordship salvation, and he had an invitation, so he gave this metaphor <laughs> about uh, about the gospel. That I was just inside. I loved every second of it. I don't know if you want me to waste my time explaining the metaphor, but I was very very disappointed. I bought his work on Ephesians, which is fantastic, but he does he does the same difficult thing. Rather than looking at the passage, we were supposed to be holy and blameless in him. In this union we're in, the Romans 6 dry baptism union with Christ, decided that those who believe would not live like Moses under the law, they would be holy and blameless in this union with Jesus. So you can describe that as a corporate belief, you can do whatever you want. But, you know, that's what I'm getting from the text that I did. But it was it was really, really sad that I was so excited to hear a professor that at least I felt had the, the same insight. But uh, a lot of the Dallas guys saw it on areas. but Lewis Barry Schaefer planned that seminary at Presbyterian roots, and they taught election. Zane held the election. I don't care. But I was really hoping to break free from that. Uh, Ephesians 1-4, and he didn't do it. But there's certainly other commentaries and scholars that have pointed out better than I can no, how it's really not what the passage is saying, and the personal level doesn't start until verse 13, and you having believed, we're also... You know, so it's obviously corporate at the front end of that. <laughs> but uh, other than that, there, there are, you know, Paul uh, uses the word chosen a, a couple times, seems to be just, boom, a fact to him. But then you you get into realize, well, chosen could be very much be choice and precious. Uh, I think the late Sigurd and Olson did a good job of bringing that out, and you see it in other places. So... Um, you know, and then they they convinced me that foreknowledge, you couldn't have foreknowledge unless you decreed complete philosophical interpretation of foreknowledge. Not at all what the word and and the Greek that they claim to be trumping me with was, was telling them. It was just, you know. <laughs> oh no, it doesn't mean that. It means he had a relationship with you. So now we're now we're going so far as to say that, that God mm-hmm. had a relationship with the elect in eternity future that. Uh, it, that was weird too uh is there a, a pool of souls out there on some other galactic thing and he's drawing elect souls from these pools of people that he had a four it doesn't make sense so foreknowledge means foreknowledge or predestined according to the foreknowledge oh and that's for for sanctification that's a growth truth not a birth truth but mm-hmm. that's, so they they didn't they weren't really hard to fall especially almost nine my goodness that one learn some basic hermeneutics and that one it goes right out the window too. But so there were things like that. But once once you wrap your head around it, then those answers just they just don't hold up.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because when when I look at within Calvinism, I didn't see a whole lot of difference between their definition of grace and their definition of belief uh, when you compare it to Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I, I imagine, I, I believe you uh, know a bit about Mormonism. And in 2 Nephi, chapter number 25, I think it is verse number 23, where it says, you know, for by grace are you saved after all that you can do. And so there's still this works-based salvation in the Jehovah's Witnesses and New World Translation says that you have to exercise your faith. John 3, 16 and elsewhere, they use instead of believe, but exercising your faith, similar to 2 Corinthians 13, 5 and examining yourself. But, and it sounds like the questions that you you really had were pretty easy to really break apart and, and dismantle. So while you were within calvinistic thought and within a calvinistic sphere of influence uh did you look at non-calvinists in a particular light or a particular way uh if so what and if not why not
1: yeah i think um you know and and again with, with with respect and and you know this is a professional interview but i so i'm not trying to slam people but in the the Upper teachings of Calvinism, whether it be you know the MacArthur's camp or the Pipers or Sproles—I mean, um, the Cal—let's use the Calvary Chapels because they are always kind of the punching bag. They—they um, they would be the ones, like, and 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 as crazy and, and maybe I'm departing from my own grace a little bit, but I, I see why. I see why this "ask Jesus into your heart" thing—it seems to be that the Calvary Chapels are just—I don't know if that came from. From their founder Chuck Smith, or where it came from, but my goodness, I, I firmly believe that the damage done with that little sinner's prayer um, may well rival Calvinism. I mean, I'm serious, it has just misled so many people. I've used it. But after I've walked a guy through the fall in Genesis, through the Levitical system, so he understood the portrait of Christ's redemption. Um, you know, there's a book called The Stranger on the Road to Rumaeus by John Cross. anybody hears this and he's a good book, to walk someone through redemption, I can't say enough about it. I've led a couple people to the Lord with the book. But um, so... Um, yeah, sorry, I get my own little little wagons and lose the train of thought. But I think um, back to the question: those guys were were looked down on, and, and I really heard it when I was at the seminary. You know, they would whack at uh, at easy believism people, which would be me. But I was mature enough just to keep my mouth shut. I wasn't there to win people over. But and the the kind of the little Bible church, Calvary Chapel, with their little Last Jesus in Your Heart was really. Pushed against. And, and like I said, I, I kind of agree. This guy's going to knock that stuff off. The one who does not, where you, ah, uh, it's it just very concerning. Again, having studied syncretism, um, I, I understand how easy it is to mix um, what we do and what he did. Uh, it's one thing to see a tribal guy, you know, standing at the edge of the river as you're offering baptism. First guy gets in, the second guy says, I'm not getting in there. Well, why not? Well, his sins are in there. Um, we just got washed off. You know, that kind of is silly to us, but then you take that syncretism. And you realize, um, especially in the Turner-Burner circles, how common it is right here in America. And it's it's very concerning, and it's Ask Jesus into your heart. Um, yeah. So anyway, rate, that answer your question? Yeah, there's definitely people of lesser um, theological pedigrees that are looked down upon from that circle, for sure.
0: So w- would you think it's true, the, the common belief in the fact that those that hold to Calvinistic or Reformed theology, they sort are considered, if you will, the intellectuals, and uh, for the most case, not all of them, but there's an aspect of them looking down on non-Calvinists as not academic. It, it, would that be fair?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I uh, it's kind of interesting one day. I was at master seminary, and I uh, <clears throat> I look up and I see a friend I hadn't seen him since we were tromping through the jungles in Papua New Guinea together, and uh, he was in another village upriver, and uh, we had our our. Friendly theological fellowship, and and he did a degree. He's one of the few voices really inside New Tribe Mission. There's others, because they aren't super dogmatic. But uh, I knew him to be Calvinistic and Lordshipy. <laughs> and now he's at Master of Seminary, and he's three years ahead of me. And so he's getting ready to graduate. And uh, he said to me, he goes, "Man, I don't know if the degree here is going to hurt me or help me." And that's a very, very common theme. The school knows it. They have some of their you know, in the middle of the road, the road, profs, not middle of the road, they're professors, excuse me, um, really enforcing it in chapel and classrooms and be humble, be that, but the Calvinism doesn't allow them to be, so it's not uncommon at all that a master's grad would get hired at a church, he'd go in there and split the place. It's, just, it's MacArthur's way to the highway, it's the Calvinist the highway, but else, the a flaming Armenian that needs to go, and that kind of thing. So, um, and I mean, even in modern day circles today, could you fathom a world in which, and, and I call a guy out, why not? You follow a James White? Mm-hmm. You how pugnacious that man can be in, in his attacks on people? Not only, in my opinion, is he disqual himself from being an elder, but if I'm a true Calvinist, I want to question his election, the way he treats some of the people that disagree with him. What an elite, uh, arrogant disposition. <laughs> Very excuse me, very concerning to me. And that's what's passed down. And I love some of the memes that come out. Um, and I think Layton flower, by the way, is probably number one punching bag as a gentleman. I really do. And, uh, been humbled by knowing he's responsible. But, uh, so I still see it as an elite movement, um, that, uh, whatever those tenets are in the human psyche, um, you know, I, I, I'm not going as so far as to say they're, they're cultists or they're not saved or no no that's what they'd say about me, but I wouldn't say that about them, but I will tell you this, if my understanding of the beam of seed is correct, there's a lot of wood, hay struggle, I I'm going to see a lot of this nonsense, excuse me, whether it's a public judgment or not, they're going to see a lot of this nonsense burn up. This is what they spent their time doing. And uh, <clears throat> I remember before the late Dave Hunt, he wrote that book, what love is this? And mm-hmm. that, me too, that came out kind of on my journey. And uh, and then Norman Geisler kind of jumped in, and I, and I watched James White go after Norman Geisler, and Norman's response. And, you know, Norman being a, a dichotomy in himself, like I read his book. I never knew what the, guy, <laughs> the book was weird for me, but um, chosen but free. Okay, but just the nasty disposition of Calvinists just absolutely blows my mind. And it, it, there there comes a point where they know it, and they're trying to settle their the younger Calvinists down. Um, but it is, it is a, it is a black eye in that theology um, that you just don't tend to see with other ones, and it comes from the the arrogance that's so prevalent, I guess. Yeah, I
0: yeah, know that was my experience when I'm actually talking with some. Now, no, I do want to say this: that one of the greatest spiritual mentors in my life was a, a very strong Calvinist, and I will say that out of every Christian that I've ever met. I don't know if I've seen another Christian that loved Jesus visibly uh, and, uh, you know, actionally. uh, Yeah, I'm going to create a word actionally, but with his actions and his words, and you could see it on his face that he loved Jesus. He was a very ardent Calvinist, and we'd have some great conversations, but there are quite a few of those that, take it to an elitist mentality from my understanding and you know my experience but while you were we somewhat already touched on this but when you were within calvinism or understanding it and trying to reconcile it what verses and passages did you seem not to be explained very well you mentioned romans 9 you mentioned ephesians 1 uh what really were you like really this is your explanation on that and you did talk about the ephesians 1 but could you elaborate a little bit on that or under other passages? Yeah, but first I would just want
1: to comment, lest we both be guilty of throwing them all under the bus here, is I, I agree with you on that. Um, I mean, kind of a term that comes out of our camp would be the, the kindler and general Calvinist. He's a Calvinist who looks at the system and he goes, okay, yep, it is what it is. I'm going to go out there and love people and share the God. Like, we're not talking about everyone that holds the Calvinist. We are not. I that up Because you're absolutely right. But our concern is with, once again, guys. um, But, uh, and then some of the, yeah, the MacArthur's and the Sprouls that are handing it down and and creating some of this. But, um, sorry, was your your question about which verses contradicted it or which verses? Well,
0: while you were like within whether Master Seminary in Francis Chan's church, things like that, what verses or passages that you were like, the Calvinists didn't have a satisfactory answer to they didn't exegete it as you believe it should have been exegeted. Like you mentioned Romans nine, are there any other passages and why, what do you believe they missed the mark on?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I think Ephesians one, four is, is another big one. I think once those two go, I would say even once, once you come to terms with with Romans nine, you I mean, really come to terms with it. Um, uh, and I'll just give a quick plug. I don't know if it's okay. Edit it out if you don't like it, but um, Zenos Christian Fellowship in Ohio, it's now called the Dwell Community Church. One of their teachers, pastors, founding member there, Dennis McCollum, go to their website and really do a search. You'll find, I think it's out of the late nineties. He did an, uh, a sermon on Romans nine, absolutely better than any book I'd read. And I read them. Um, fantastic job. But once you, um, Dennis McCombum at the dwellers, or Christ. yeah. But once that fell, not only did it fall, but it actually takes you the opposite direction, right? So when you see that those vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is not my unbelieving brother. That's not my dad. That's not my neighbor, that is actually an obstinate Israel who had been rejecting God for centuries. They were prepared for destruction, but he had mercy on them because he was carrying a vessel to the world, that being Jesus Christ. They were prepared for destruction. And that's the destruction that hit them and is clobbering them to this day uh, until they repent. Uh, in, in Luke 20, or excuse me, Leviticus 26, 40, I believe they repent of a singular specific sin, that being rejected Christ. Um, but. Once that once Romans 9 goes and you actually see the opposite, <clears throat> Ephesians 1 form was always easy for me once you understand what it meant in Christ. Um, but I, I don't know many Calvinists, not the aggressive ones, that teach this whole truth because it does undermine their holiness. So I think there's maybe a, a, a an inborn pushback against Ephesians 1 4 there. And then the, the gift thing, like I said, in the in the, the Greek, you have a, a real gender issue with words and, and so forth in Ephesians 2. So it's probably best understood that the entire package of salvation is the gift. And Paul certainly verifies that. I mean, he uses two Greek words, dorian and charis, back to back. dorian is where we get the idea of donate, right? donated salvation freely. And yet he felt the need to use that to describe grace. I think that's God's implanted uh, pushback mm-hmm. against Calvin. It's not because we take grace and the Mormons have one take the our Catholic friends have another, and our reformed friends have another, and then God has his and it's pretty great donating without a cause type um so. You just see these passages fall, but then there's the other ones. Like, and there's ones that would tell me you get into to John six, but then you realize, no, that's God literally taking this group and transferring Old Testament believers into the hands of Jesus. So that did require an explanation for me. I'm not an expert, but you start seeing other guys navigate that text. Go, wait a minute, that is not saying um, what the Calvinist says. It's saying either, and there's a number of those things. So uh, to me, the, whole, the kind of whole system fell primarily though under the narrative. Um, this is one of my favorite passages um, the angel of the Lord who I'd, I'd suggest is, is none other than Jesus Christ himself was asked once in Judges um, what's your name? and he said why do you ask my name seeing that it's wonderful right?" and that's part of Isaiah 9-6 that wonderful I put my comma after wonderful not after counselor because of that passage in other words what I believe Jesus is saying in the Old Testament is you're not going to know who I am through my name even though name in the Hebrew is very very rich has so much more meaning than in english you see it see that i'm wonderful see that narrative go back into the garden and realize he took them from general creation into eden into paradise for a time of testing and suggests that he supplanted their response and then allowed millions excuse me billions and billions of people to perish with that simple disposition and he ordered like that, that that's a monstrosity if it's not true. You've you, you accused him of something that's also Mormon. They believe the fall was a fall forward. So you, you, you see it in the narrative. See them have responsibility and say the grace, and then follow that all the way through. Watch God negotiate, excuse me, negotiate, articulate consequences uh, to Cain. Just if you would have done what's right, what you're not capable of according to count over and over and over again you see throughout the narrative of scripture um, the opposite you see people exercising their free will even amongst those we'd have no choice to say like we run around in a hotel room and maybe you're curious so you open the drawer and under the lamp and there's a gideon Bible and boy Gideon must have been a gideon was a monster in his own right He started out as a scared meat guy he was a monster who introduced as much idolatry as anybody else ever did with this default and the and you kind of go wait a minute, so They think God did that? Like they think he decreed all these things and let the narrative speak. These are men. What got to Gideon? The same thing that gets to so many of us is pride. Plain and simple. Pride. And that is what's destroying more ministers in these mega churches and different venues. Small churches too. Like little guys like us, crash and burn just at the same rate. But you just see the narrative. And to me, you're seeing what is wonderful. And I do not think that whether it be the biblical definition of faith. I just had another exchange, I don't know if you're aware, if you follow these things, but BDAG between edition two and three changed their definition of faith with no real explanation. Um, So everybody thinks, oh, well, BDAG says faith now means commitment. Well, let's just throw all thousands of years of theology out the window. I don't need BDAGs. The definition for faith is repeated in the Bible. Genesis 12, 6. took them outside, looked up, looked at the sand, look at it. And his faith was credited in his righteousness. So now, the whole narrative, um, there's no Lordship Salvation in there. There's no, I mean, I'm I'm glad Paul Washer wasn't standing outside that first Passover room and that blood was applied, so he would be berating people. He would be just nailing them to the wall as they attempted to go into that room. Um, and, and it's just heartbreaking. So when you see it in the narrative, they can argue all they want through some some Greek syntax or, or whatever, but it, it's just not there. It's not there. So I don't know, that's the only answer Narrative, to me, solves all the problems, and I didn't need to go to seminary. I didn't need to learn the Greek to be able to trust the translators and see the narrative, and there's where you get your real truth from.
0: Oh, definitely. Awesome. Similar to those lines for people that were in Calvinism that I have talked to and experienced with, it it brought personal and emotional struggles, especially when you look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5, when Paul admonishes them to regularly examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith. Now, it's interesting that Paul says in the faith, not in Christ, but we know how the Calvinist theology will interpret that and many others. Uh, While you were really dealing with this, were there any personal or emotional struggles that you had to fight, uh, whether or not Calvinist theology was right or wrong?
1: Um gosh, it's been so long I have to wrestle with that one. <coughs> me. Um I I can't, you know. I just can't really recall. I do remember like so many others, I ran a busy business. I had three little kids at the time. I didn't get church. <coughs> Excuse me. I may need to put poster and go to drink of water. I don't know if that's doable, you, but
0: you can go get some water, that's fine. Let me get through this question real quick. Yeah,
1: um, there was a lot of pretending, and I and I kind of mentioned before working side by side with brothers at Cornerstone, and then going to their homes and seeing a different side. Um, but there was a lot of that in our marriage too. We'd fight. <clears throat> We're new believers too, so we expect it. But um, back one way at home, show up at church, praise Jesus, yeah, everything is good. Just put on that mask, smile, and everything's good. So there was you know no real ability um, to be ourselves and, and this is another thing too, a little deviation from the question, but I think because it directly relates to to some of my background, at least with Francis. He was really up and coming in, in 01, 02 and doing mostly youth speaking stuff and you know, wasn't necessarily sharing a stage with Piper in <laughs> those days, you know, but he was out in Michigan once so we went to Bible school and and um I hadn't really fully, you know, wrestled with how many concerns the school might have over him. But he came and, and spoke in a chapel and he got a little extra from wherever. So he, he took my wife and I and another student from Cornerstone out to dinner. And I remember being so excited and sharing with them that I understood the flesh. And that when I do the things that I don't want to do, that it actually wasn't me because I was in Christ. I was a new creation. I had a new identity. That was actually the old man or uh, maybe I called it sin nature at the time. I really don't remember all the specifics. And here we are at dinner and you look right at me and you goes, you don't have flesh. You don't have a sin nature. You don't have that. I'm like, I don't. Well, what do you, what do you do with that? And that's that, you know, um, that went away. It's, it's died and gone now and you're just completely new and there's no, really remnant of that. And, and I, I never really pushed him on it. I remember just being, just being so bummed. Wait a minute. So, that those desires, like and I'm going to be open and honest for a minute. I used to be a police officer, and uh, we would uh, we got into some obnoxious things off duty. I was an unbeliever, whether it be uh, inappropriate clubs and strippers, and it was a very much you know hire a couple of them at a time and drink beer, and it was a totally wrong. And so they put me in, in the Bible school, and and I'm I'm just a couple of years in the Lord now, a year and a half, and, and a lot of those memories, you know, the flesh I love that kind of nonsense. And so they housed me on the third floor with all the single girls. And they had the to married too. And we had to share a bathroom with them. And I'm, I'm, I am I'm was open to my wife and even the dean students. Like, I'm walking down the hallways and you, you got these 20 year old girls that think it's cute. And they're hanging all over each other. And I'm like going into the bathroom and sharing with them. And I'm like, I thought men were the gross ones. I was really struggling with that. And so, from a theological perspective, I go, yes, I'd watched some grossly inappropriate pornographic level stuff and now my mind was was going there with these wonderful sisters in christ and now i have my own pastor saying that's not the flesh you don't have it that's just you that's the new creation and i'm like i'm not real impressed with the creation that occurred in me um obviously i completely disagree with that and victory doesn't come by taking that me myself and i and i got first john 1 9 i got that when i blow it so i'm equipped i'm good and boom, we just kind of jump all in. And and, and again, I, I don't know anybody that lived their theology better than Francis Chan, okay? But having said that, his counsel to more than one person over the years, it was kind of a running joke. Well, do you love your sin or Jesus more? Like that's really what the guy had to offer. Um, going there you know, with breast cancer, what are you worried about? You're gonna go be with Jesus. Like there was this okay. And for him that worked, right? But that's not really an accurate way at all. The counsel, especially the theological implications of a believer who has a wretched sinful past, and that stuff has carried on in the flesh. And to say you don't have that brings you to that one nature, me and myself, First John 1, 9, and then you just spin in your wheels, Romans 7, whack-a-mole, whack-a-mole, recommit, retry. And at the same time, that's what his church was producing. So I'd go home and intern and go on the men's retreat and what like, this guy get baptized for the third time. What is he doing? It's exactly what he's doing. He's realized, well, I, too, wanted to watch these two girls. You can edit this out. I'm just a very, very open person with this stuff. But I, too, wanted that, and so I must not have been a Christian. But this time, I'm really serious, and it's just the wheels spin with this nonsense over and over and over again. And uh, I had no ability to say, you know what, brother, you are saved. What you're experiencing is a lack of victory over the flesh. And there's no emancipation truths taught in lordship, salvation. Francis Chance church, I believe they finally taught through the book of Romans once he was gone. What a critical book. Absolutely critical book. And I believe in the sovereignty of God, it's positioned where it's positioned in the canon for a reason. Coming out of the book of Acts, you don't know which way is that. What happened to Peter and his whole thing? And now you got Paul. Did he replace Peter? What? And then you get this point by point, systematic explanation of Christianity, justification by faith. But then... Unlike the Calvinists and the lordshippers, they call for immediate commitment. Paul offers you Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 as your emancipation truths. How are you going to live free from that flesh? was never taught at Cornerstone. Never. In fact, the church disciplined uh, a gal once, and, and maybe rightfully so, but I remember looking at the pastor and I go, do you realize she has no idea that that was the flesh? And you know his explanation? Oh, no, no, I explained it to her. That, that was what he said. I explained it to her. So you church disciplined her. Yep, he did. Okay. She had no ability to look at her sin and go, that's the flesh. No ability, because for 20 plus years, it was all the same message. Holy, 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 or else not forgiven, sanctified. And you've got two entities within, and they're at odds so that you cannot do what you want to do. Galatians 5, never, ever taught. Look, the Romans was not taught in Francis Chan's church for the entire time he was there huge, huge problem. And so you have essentially no, no ability to be emancipated from the flesh and walk in victory. And then we're off the question now, but those are some of the most those concern me more than a kinder and general Calvinist going, look, we're chosen, man. Get out there and preach to other chosen people. All right, brother, let's do it. That's concerning. And that's more a uh, flow of I don't know where, where that comes from. Is that lordship? Is that uh, I don't know. It's concerning, but anyway sorry i got
0: off question here a little bit but. no that that's good i mean that definitely aligns with what i've been learning and talking with other people about that you know the world already tells us that we're not enough we're not pretty enough cute enough tall enough thin enough and now within calvinist theology it just seems like you're not good enough and so you have to get resaved and rebaptized as opposed to being discipled and, and so that, that's what i'm hearing so i appreciate that did you want to go ahead and get some water, get something to drink? Are you good?
1: Uh, I think I'm okay now. If it
0: kicks up again, I'll go. How's that? Okay, now you're good. So we'll just trim a, a very little bit. I like to keep everything uh, unedited, but we'll just trim just a little bit. That way, uh, we get fluid uh, interview stuff. But so you talked about the somewhat of the personal emotional struggles. You talked about the verses that. You know, really, did makes make sense to you from a Calvinistic perspective. What actually led to your rejection of Calvinist theology?
1: I think the the, the total rejection came as I finished Dennis McCombs' uh, one-hour sermon on Romans chapter nine. That that was the defining moment. Uh, I just said there's there, this is not right this is not this is wrong we are way off on this thing so i i got give credit to, to where he's doing i also read uh Deon calvinism and armenian by sigurd nolson and some things in there i you know, like every book i don't know why we always feel the need to say but, <laughs> but uh um what love is this by dave Hunt. I, I felt like he made some good point pointing out what love is this but uh there was one the meat was lacking in that book for me, but uh, so there's some obviously some books and some reads, and then the the staff uh, at Bible school. Um, we had one guy, and he, and he was great, but he he was more Calvinistic, and I think he ended up leaving the the ministry or the mission there my junior year or something. It just caught up to him. You just have so many students now, kind of seeing it for what it was, and uh, the school kind of pushed him, to touch maybe on some of the issues, but I believe it was perseverance he left over, but. I um I ended up I went to uh, Tyndale Theological Seminary I went to the Master Seminary and then I went to Gray school of theology and uh, one exception that's another uh, plug here Dr Ken Wilson um, probably the greatest theological mind I've ever had the privilege of listening to um, but uh, with the exception of of, of Dr Wilson um, I would put the teachers at what was in NTBI in Jackson, Michigan, I believe most of them have either you know, gone back to the mission field or now Waukesha, Wisconsin, but those men uh, without seminary degrees, um, most of them were absolutely fantastically explaining this book, and they led me out of Calvinism. I remember showing up, at I went down to pay my bill, and I think I had just left class, a brand new freshman, and I had my John MacArthur study Bible with me. And uh um Rexcu wine, I, and the brother's still out there, but he's like, "Hey, you know that and it was it started a journey and uh led me out of of both lordship uh and Calvinism, so I'm so, so grateful for those guys
0: So we mentioned a little bit about the dichotomy, so uh being led out of Calvinism, what were you led into, and why
1: well, there um most of my, like, I appreciate the pushback um, and appreciate the chance to try and help somebody out of Calvinism. But for me, like we said, there's so many that are the kindler and gentler. And um, uh, on my journey, I did end up back at my home church for a season. Like I said, I really bonded with um, Pastor Todd at Cornerstone. We were very close. And I almost joined the staff there, even though we both knew I didn't completely agree with him. Um, so, but my battle was not against the Lord. And the lordship salvation was more egregious to me that literally that you take someone in, that, that in their own doing, they could look at the cross, look at Jesus and say, OK, I'm going to clean up and, and I'm going to get it right this time. I'm going to make that commitment. and I'm going to do that. So for me, the, um, the biggest issues in my own personal theological is not so much Calvinism as it is um, lordship salvation. And so when I left Calvinism, there was... Was what it had pretty, pretty much already been replaced by understanding free grace, and there's the free grace gospel. But then there's some guys, um, really I appreciate the one by um, Dr. Dave Anderson again, Grace School of Theology. He has a, a book and a couple of those written books that you can actually kind of compare it so You have your, your Calvinism, your Arminianism, and even Roman Catholicism, those are all three systematic theologies where i would see free grace is kind of turned into one too where it's not just oh it free grace gospel you can use believe instead of follow commit uh, give your life to whatever but then understanding it um, from a broader perspective in other words what, what do you do with uh, the perseverance um, so you can understand it as a as a system and uh, so i Pretty much was convinced one was wrong by seeing that it could be a system in and of itself. Not that we're buying into a system, but the consistency is what the right—that's what the tulip offers. It offers you consistency, and so understanding. Yeah, there is a doctrine of rewards, which is your motivation. There's there's significant consequences, and then uh, I mean, Doctor Wilson pointed out in class one day, Colossians three twenty five. You will be recompensed. Um, I think when there's mythos, we even get our art. Pay compensation, money for you're getting something for the bad you've done, and you're getting something for the good. Now that wouldn't hold to purgatory, but um, when you understand now that that it can be more than just gospel clarity, as you explain John three sixteen, but there are the other tenets of, of what you do with your theology all fall into place beautifully too, and, and without contradiction, like Calvinists have. So to me, it was just it was never I was lost looking for a system, but it whatever Calvinism. Um, offers you in, in Andrew MacArthur Study Bible giving you all the reasons why they're right, whatever. There's ample scholarly work out there that makes perfect sense as a system, and it's free grace, free grace theology, not just free grace soteriology. So, again, a little bit of a long answer, but it was really easy mm-hmm. because I don't-
0: so it sounds like you uh really adhere to what's known as free grace theology before the label, you know, was even known. Would that be a fair assessment? I think so. I mean, I'd have
1: to, you know, I was out of the loop for a while on the mission field, and I don't know when that, you know, began to systemize. My first exposure was it to was the the gospel according to Jesus, and and then you know, Zane Hodges' response to that, and and it was kind of just those two camps. And I don't know if had anybody written a systematic uh, Except for maybe Lewis Ferry Schaefer. Um, I still the seven volume set. It's probably still my favorite. So it was there, but it really wasn't presented, you know. So if I if I say to someone you have a free grace theology, um, that means that when they present the gospel, they're gonna stick with biblical verbiage, which is believe. You, know, you don't have a lot of synonyms that maybe receive, uh, accepted, probably not the end of the world, trust it, okay. But um, you know, then there's the understanding it that it's consistent with other areas in the same way that Calvinism has other tenets to it that follow. It has the same consistency cover to cover in the scriptures that they've created in their theology, but I obviously, I would hold that ours is correct. Yeah.
0: yeah. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, people sort of putting on masks when, when they were in Calvinist theology and the fact that, you know, in front of the church or in front of certain uh, church leaders, they would, you know, act, very pious. But then mm-hmm. once they're behind closed doors, like you said, you know, so-and-so was out there, you know, cussing up a storm over their neighbor, whatever the case was. And so it seems like it would always make somebody have to wear a mask and be aware of who who's around and, and sort of be like a whitewashed tombs full of dead man bones type deal. So since coming out of Calvinist theology or actually putting it away and realizing ghost okay, K the fallacies of it uh, in embracing what's known as free grace theology. Uh, how has your personal, mental, emotional state changed? Has it gotten better? Uh, not not to say that it was bad in the beginning, but uh, was it freedom? You know, could you speak a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I, I think there was this freedom and more responsibility. see, as a Calvinist, <clears throat> when you when you sin when you blow it whether it be yelling at your three-year-old or getting caught up in lust or whatever it was you you think in the back of your mind well it's okay because i'm elect and you know my goodness calvin oversaw the murder of more than one um <laughs> so you you just tend to justify it well i'm elect and elect failed to but um and i don't even know that that's really that unbiblical um you you confess it you move on but Now, understanding the the doctrine of of rewards um, a little bit differently, and one of the things that jumped out to me, um, again, part of seeing free grace as more of a system, was the mende construction in Romans chapter 8, right? In our English translations, uh, not even the revered King James captures it. Um, It's a mende construction. Is the one hand this, or on the other hand that? So, you'll be heirs of God, or joint heirs with Christ, if... Uh, you suffer, and it's a mandate construction. So it's presenting two very real possibilities, right? Very consistent with the parables you see that Jesus told, where maybe some dude is going to lose because of poor stewardship his right to. Christ, and it is forfeited. And you see this in the parables. My goodness, you see a guy dismissed from the, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Fascinating passage. We could wrestle with it all day long. Um, but once you start to see rewards in that, uh, to our Arminian friends, there's nobody threatened with losing salvation. Um, losing your inheritance is, is cautioned against. And I would say that's part of that menday construction, that you're going to lose reward. Um, in fact, it was interesting, my wife recently commented on the other day, but we were back at, at Cornerstone on furlough, I believe, from the mission field. Francis was preaching, and he read right out of the Galatians passage, where it talks about devices and said, if you do these things, you will not inherit. And without missing a beat or even lifting his eyes from the text, he put the word see, the kingdom, instead of inherit. And I remember my wife, she jumped up in her seat and she looked at me and I gave her a high five for catching it. Nothing. No one else in that church either cared or was sense enough to realize that he just took, because Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're going to what? See the kingdom. He just took part of what Jesus said. And because his own theology absolutely demands it, it demands it. Put put C in that Galatians. If you take inheritance English, Greek, or Hebrew, it does not mean the same thing. Unfortunately, my older son paid a bit of a price for us going to the mission field and some problems, and he's very much a carnal. He's very much estranged from us. And you know what? If I had to give my life insurance policy right now, I would probably give him the least. He is not going to inherit what Dad has because of the decisions he made. But dog on it, he is my boy, and he will always be my child. And that's what I believe God is saying. You want to be faithful, you want to rule and reign with Christ. My goodness, we we were birthed, I believe, out of a process to govern, judge, and rule the angels. So this world is our little Eden. and We're being tested and then justified and then prepared for ministry in the kingdom to come. Um, and seeing that, seeing Colossians 3, uh, and there will be consequences. Um, and I don't know what that looks like. Is it just the tears? Is it just lost opportunity? But it has heightened me to to want to walk to not just dismiss sin um, or patterns of sin um, as just a little oops, but to really want to make sure that at the end of my life, it's not wood, hay and stubble all burned up and that I actually am when you're called, you were chosen. I believe that's talking about chosen to reign with Christ. So it has done big picture far more than just, well, I really blew it this time. I'll confess it. Glad no one saw it, but, I just don't see the growth uh, in that. I really don't. Where I see the growth and that God is preparing me to return with Jesus Christ in Revelation. That's after the rapture of the church to rule and reign. And I want to be faithful in that and to get the opportunity to be everything that He wanted the human race to be.
0: Man, That's, that's awesome. You know, when you were talking there, it made me think as far as the... <laughs> the contrast between the character of God seen within Calvinistic theology and the character of God seen within what's known as free grace theology and the fact that, Calvinistic theology looks at God and looks at the sonship, if you will, uh, predicated on if we do uh, and if we don't, then either A, we were never a child or B, we're going to uh, not obtain that sonship in the final salvation. Whereas free grace theology teaches that now you're still a child if you believe in Christ, you know, as death on the cross for your sins, however, comma, as a child, God loves us enough to try to rehabilitate us through discipline. You know, and so it's it's so much more assurance and security and just the analogy of just a family and a father and a parent with their child. But, no, I appreciate you sharing all that. So last question I have for you is uh, so obviously this series is more geared towards helping those within Calvinism uh, find freedom, if you will. Uh, What are some final thoughts you'd have for anybody that's struggling with Calvinism? Uh, What would you offer them?
1: Well, first thing, I, I probably, you know, at some point, they're going to have to wrestle with a different understanding of sovereignty. That They just are right. You had uh, the Arthur Pink, right, and, and his explanation that even a wild turkey in the middle of the forest somewhere, God decreed how the muscles in that turkey's neck would respond if it got in a fight right? And I've spoken with the, a Calvinist from Masters. He's now a Catholic priest. Go chew on that one. But in the time, he was, sorry, an Orthodox priest. He's married, but it's it's Catholic to me. Um, at the time, he popped his water bottle off the lid and dropped it, and he said, that was decreed. You see how the way it spun and bounced on the ground before I picked it up? All that has been decreed. Look, if you were to take a chess set, <clears throat> excuse me, And realize that every one of those pieces is gifted differently. Some are stronger, such as a a rook over a pawn. But God literally has the scriptures and tells you how everything is going to end. But those people, those pawns, not one of them was violated as a human being in their free will. And all the pieces moved and did in the end. He still comes out as the sovereign king. And his story works out exactly the way. Um, that the scripture said it would, right? And and the closest word in the Greek to sovereign is going to explain Caesar. What does Caesar do over his empire? He doesn't want you doing nothing except for what he decreed. You live your life, you generate. And at the end, Caesar may decide if you live or die. He may decide this, he may decide that. He makes these decisions, but the day-to-day functions, like as if it's pre-programmed, it is absolutely destroyed people go into the mission field. And I know the Calvinists will respond, well, we got William Carey and we have, they'll, they'll, they'll claim all these names. Um, well, I could also show you the ones where the Presbyterian would slaughter the non-elect on Vanuatu Island. There's some evidence like it, But they claim that they are the ones that have the legendary missionaries and, and maybe they do, but I would suggest that that is despite they're me calvinistic not because they're calvinistic but if we can come to terms with the sovereignty of god that is so immense and so powerful that he can give me and you free will this day right and still accomplish every single thing he ever wanted accomplished you know what that sovereign god right there is so much more impressive as Yahweh, as Jehovah, than as Geppetto, who's got a bunch of Pinocchios and he's just working the strings. Is that really impressive? Is it God, and I'm and two on this, is it God triune in nature and somehow in the council of the triune God, the Savior be the Son, the Convictor be the Spirit, the Father's the Father? But did they ever stop and realize that when these little these little trolls down here rebel, it's going to be so bad. The father looked at the son and said, excuse me, looked at the spirit co-equal and said, you're not even capable of bringing them to a point of believing in Calvinism. That, that occurred. I don't know if the spirit just agreed. Yeah, it's too bad. I am God, very God, but I can't bring them to a point with conviction and enlightenment they believe. So the father said, well, then I have to, I have to decree it to happen in advance. Boy, that's that's concerning. I mean, at some point too, you just like you're, are you not blaspheming the spirit when the text explicitly says, "I will convict them"? And what's the two point conviction about sin and about what righteousness? Where does the righteousness come from? Because it means of being righteous with God is through faith in Christ. So it is His job in the text of Scripture to do just that. And the Calvinist says, "No way, He's incapable of bringing them to that point unless the deck was stacked." And then you have to realize too, and as a missiologist, we wrestle with this. Why the racial imbalance? Why the racial imbalance? Oh, you don't know when it's going to end, and it could swing the other way. Okay, so he's going to start electing uh, Arabs at a rate that is just stunning, and it's going to somehow counterbalance the fact that most of the people that were elect are white. Is it also going to counter that under the sovereign God today? According to the U.S. Center for World Missions, ninety-eight cents of every Christian dollar giving—not just in America or Great Britain—ninety-eight percent, I believe it is, of every Christian dollar given worldwide, goes to the English-speaking world. Under a decree from God. That's not what my Bible says. It says we're supposed to read ponta to ethnic, all the ethnic groups, not just white people. And let's make sure white people have 12 churches to choose from, 35 different podcasts on their phone and Christian radio to keep them really elect and solid. What about the African church is so enthralled with prosperity because of their poverty. Finding a clear gospel presentation in Africa is rare. Where's where's the decree to clean up the gospel in Africa? Where's the decree to get Bible into people's hands? Where the I think maybe when Paul turned to Macedonian visit and we got the gospel in Europe instead of Africa, do you think maybe that had something to do with it? Yes, it did. But it's our responsibility to turn around and go to those nations, and we don't. Why don't we? Because we weren't called under the hand of the sovereign God. Really, and is it really any shock that the 1040 window or the most unevangelized places in the world are also the most difficult to live in, to, to hike trails to be covered with worms and leeches and mosquitoes and dengue fever, to have to go back to the elect Calvinists and beg them for a buck or two because you can't work on the mission field? Oh, we only give to scholarly work. So the Calvinists are holding up the funding, too, by and large. So are the Armenians. But my goodness, if we see the narrative in light of what God said, in light of what's happening around the world, and you think that's all decreed, you think he decreed the selfishness in the American church? You think he decreed that 95% of all seminary graduates will minister in the English-speaking world? That they will claim a divine calling and plant yet another church? I, mean, I don't get a lot of requests for money, but if you come into our church looking for money to plant a church in America, you're going to get in earful, And I want to hear why America, why does this town you're talking about need another church? It's, it's got to stop. It is the imbalance is, is absolutely insane. I went to three different seminaries and was not required to take a missions class at any of them. Mm. It's not. And it's, it's a concern. So anyway, I know another long answer, but if you would step back, you know, oh, there's a book I really enjoyed. It didn't get into much exegesis, but Young, Restless, and No Longer Reformed. It's a, a quick little read. And just, it helps with the idea just to push back, open your mind, look at what's going on in the world, and realize there is no logical way to treat this in light of the scriptures. It's not. It's a product of our selfishness. It's a product of one nature. Uh, for the sinner, not being able to separate the flesh and therefore truly yield to the spirit, which might actually prompt someone to go to the mission field. If you're a Calvinist, the mission field by margin of your own holiness. Because I believe someone even recently quoted MacArthur as saying he's only like 90-some percent convinced he's elect. Um, so it's insane. Absolutely insane. They've made the Great Commission, the affirmation, and a lot of those those guys, and those are brothers and sisters on the mission field, and they would take exception to that, and to them, I, I offer my apologies, but I'm talking about, by and large, what has absolutely crippled the body of Christ, uh, and that is the sovereignty of God as taught by the Calvinists, and I firmly, firmly, firmly believe that. Those that go, go despite it, and praise God they do, but not because of it.
0: Wow, I appreciate that. That That's definitely from the heart of a pastor, heart of a missionary. And uh, so I really appreciate that. So whereas some people definitely see, and like you said, we didn't get into much exegesis at all, you know, in this video. And you can definitely tell the fallacies of, you know, the exegesis that Calvinist, you know, theology holds to. But when you do step back and you look at, okay, what does this theology teach about the character of God and the love of God? Is that true of what the Bible speaks of? about god's character and uh we have to agree that it does not that the calvinist theology paints god's character as a malevolent tyrannical being as opposed to a loving merciful holy and righteous god but whose offer is for whosoever believeth and so no i I appreciate that mike i appreciate the heart that you had for that and so that's going to wrap it up with this particular interview so we got more interviews in this series coming up as well so be in prayer for that Uh, We're going to try to have links in the descriptions to blow uh, for Mike's uh, church out there and then some of the things that he has referenced as well. And so until next time, God bless.